You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Canadian visitors normally start arriving in the islands around this time to escape the cold. Many of timeshare units or have invested in condominiums, which they rent out the rest of the year. We reached out to Michael Cuthbertson to check in on the activity with our snowbirds from Canada now that Canada has been added to our Safe Travels program. Cuthbertson is Managing Director of Destination Residences, which handles properties on Maui, Kauai, and the Big Island. The expectations when it was first announced back in mid-November was that we would see an initial burst of early adopters, if you will, who've had pent-up demand and wanting to get back to Hawaii. Unfortunately, I think that coincided with uh, continued case spikes on the mainland and some adjustments to the travel rules that happened. And we haven't necessarily seen the initial burst for sort of immediate business coming out here to Hawaii. But what we have seen is what I like to call the conservative loyalists who are making plans in the future. You know, they're looking into March, April, May next year and already starting to set their plans for that time frame, probably allowing themselves some time for the, the vaccine to roll out and get a little bit more confident with the, the complete travel opportunity to come out to Hawaii. And your client is the larger share of it, generally the snowbirds that come and rent condos, a timeshare owners? Ours are a combination of condominium owners as well as condominium rental guests. And typically in the first quarter of the year, the snowbird quarter, when everybody comes out and, and escapes the, the cold in Canada, uh, we we do about uh, 25% of our business comes from Canada, which is very significant, uh, especially here on Maui. And of that, about 30% are our owners who are coming out to return to their condominiums. And 70% of that are paying guests who are coming out and visiting more on a transient basis. So when you say that uh, you've got the loyal group that is still interested in coming, are you seeing more of the the owners coming? That loyal group really starts with the owners. The one thing that we haven't seen a decrease in is our owner occupancy. These are people who invested into Hawaii many years ago. They've owned condos here for a long time, and it's a part of their life. Uh, it's a part of their lifestyle. And so they're they're braving the elements and, and the travel challenges to get out here and absolutely loving it. And they're keeping their plans going through the winter. Where we have seen the impact is more the, the transient condominium rental guest who is on pause a little bit, uh, but still very interested. The folks that normally come here, I mean, what's their length of stay? Typically in our condominiums, the folks that are coming here are staying between 7 and 14 days. Our Canadian visitor stays around an average of 11 days. So they're coming out for longer periods of time. Our owners are generally coming out for, for longer periods of time, anywhere between 3 and and. 12 weeks. Uh, some of them will come out for the entire winter. Uh, and in fact, we had a lot of them who flew out even as, as early as October when the state of Hawaii first uh, reopened with the Safe Travels program. We had a number of owners uh, come out at that time, even though the, the formal bubble with Canada was not in place. And uh, they've been here ever since. And uh, what can you share about the, the lift coming out of Canada? The lift is, is improving significantly. Air Canada, as well as WestJet, have ramped up their flights, uh, most notably coming into Maui, which I think will be a huge benefit for us here. Um, 
and I believe that started really in, in haste mid midweek this week, and, and we have some new flights coming in on, on Saturday uh, that are expected to continue uh, through the first quarter of the year and improve that access. Have you seen any properties getting flipped or getting put on the market because folks have just changed their mind about coming over here? There have been an increase in in resales and listings in some buildings. It's, it's very dependent on the building and, and some of the locations. For the most part, we've seen people remain committed. But I believe that just simply because of uh, the sheer economic uh, devastation that's happened, uh, we're seeing more more so a uh, a listing of, of condominiums for sale that are because of economic reasons and not because people want to or are pulling away from Hawaii. They still see Hawaii as a as a safe haven, and it's something that I think has been critical from. Uh, Governor Ige on down to the mayors since the beginning that maintaining Hawaii as a safe place to come to is absolutely vital. And and I believe that our homeowners and our guests still have a a very strong conviction that Hawaii is is that safe haven. Can you share anything about the Japan market? Uh, We have a number of properties in Manalani and we're very close to the Japanese market, probably more so on that island than we are on other islands. And it was great to see the opening. Uh, we work with a lot of travel partners in Japan, and I know there was a lot of excitement. It's been very incremental in, in its boost to the, the Japanese tourism. And we didn't expect a whole lot out of that to begin with, given, again, kind of case rises that are happening in, in Japan, their own restrictions with, within the country, their own emergency rules. I think there's still some conservatism about traveling, but what we haven't seen at all is a diminishing interest It's more so just a delay. And I think we're looking forward to a fantastic opportunity as we see the vaccine roll out more on a global scale and continued safety measures that as we move into the back half of of next year and and summer 2021 into fall, we should see a completely different light shed on these programs that are beginning today. What are the expectations for Golden Week, you know, when you normally see a lot of travelers from Japan come over here? I think they're pretty tempered this year from from what I'm hearing around is, is not super high expectation. Again, just sort of time and place context is is not necessarily allowing that to flourish like it has in the past. Even Ironman over on the Big Island, yeah, some of some of these major events that would normally be draws of a of a different kind, uh, you know, it's not your typical tourist draw. It was fantastic to see the startup of the World Surf League again with uh, with Pipe Masters and the the Roxy Pro up in Honolulu starting to get the energy back around, but again, very very limited in what they're attracting or, or what they're even allowed to attract due to social distancing guidelines at this stage. I think the biggest thing with when we talk about the Canadian market right now is that, that the country of Canada still has a significant set of emergency rules. And while we're making it easier and more fluid to come to Hawaii, there's still some issues of travelers returning back to Canada, and I think that's dampening some spirit and some desire to travel. So again, I think those will go hand in hand to loosening up. We just sent out the first pitch in a nine-inning game. I am absolutely convinced we're going to win at the end of the nine-inning game, and tourism will return, and we will see that light come come really to fruition through the second quarter of next year into the latter half of next year. But right now, I think we're settling through a lot of activity with uh, the overall pandemic between the the emergency rules that are out and the distribution of the vaccine. 
we're just starting and and we're very positive and and super excited from what we're hearing from our owners and guests about the future it just may take another couple months to really pull that to fruition luxury market is doing very well everywhere right now we definitely are seeing um, those with disposable incomes and uh, uh, flexible travel schedules that they can pick up we're certainly seeing a very good interest at at that higher end uh, and in fact we have a number of people who have booked and come out to stay with us for i think last week we booked an 84 night stay 107 night stay we had 140 night stay so there's a lot of people who are actually coming out and escaping where they're at um, and and living in paradise for a little while. That was Michael Cuthbertson, who is the managing director of Destination Residences, which handles vacation properties across the state. We talked to him Friday afternoon. He was talking about the influx of Canadians under the Safe Travels program that started last week. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Care Choices. Its virtual event, Season of Hope, honors loved ones who have passed and celebrates dreams for the future. A gift to the community with music and more this Wednesday, 5 p.m. HawaiiCareChoices.org. No matter what 2020 threw at us, HPR was here for you, bringing the news you needed to know when you needed to know it. It's a commitment every one of our journalists keeps day in and day out, whether it's a quiet year for news or very, very busy. This work is only possible with your support. So, as we wrap up the year, we ask you to help keep this work going into 2021. If you can, give to this nonprofit station today, and thanks. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. During the 1950s, the drive-in phenomena swept the nation, and Hawaii was no exception. Eating habits were changing fast, literally, as fast food was even served by car hops on roller skates. Historically, it was also the first time teens had access to both pocket money and their own transportation. Drive-ins were the perfect place to rendezvous and to consume calorific standard teen fare, hamburgers, fries, and maybe even a cherry Coke. On Oahu, Scotty's Drive-In opened on Keomoku Street in 1956, and this inspired a couple of young men to introduce the concept to Sandy Little Kailua about a year later. For today's quiz, can you name this windward eatery of a bygone era and its owners? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you think you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to supporting affordable housing statewide, along with civic and community initiatives for residents. Learn more at NareetHawaii.com. Tourism Authority has been working behind the scenes to generate sparks as we try and recover from this health and economic crisis. The return of travelers has been slow, even with the bubbles and the pretest programs that are being established with our international and domestic par- markets. The recent developments with the vaccine and the news of a mutating virus stand to impact consumer confidence. Industry officials have their eye on the summer of next year while hailing the small steps along the way. We talked to Patty Herman, Vice President of Marketing at HTA, about how the visitor landscape is shaping up as we move out of 2020 and into 2021. So far, I think everything is going well. WestJet and Air Canada, and it's really their medical partnership, not with the state of Hawaii or with our AG's office at DOH. And they've really stepped up and they've done the process themselves, vetted all of the medical, made sure that the tests are NAT and PCR, which is, you know, what we require. So everything seems to be going well. Naturally, you know, we still have our growing pain where some of the medical entities were difficult to reach to, according to the emails that I'm getting with the travelers. But overall, it seems to be going well, and there seems to be a lot of pent-up traveling, wanting to travel desire from the Canadian market. So that's all a really good signal. Our numbers are down, you know, compared to most places across the country. So I think the perception that we're a safer destination, you know, is a good a good thing. As long as we can keep it that well, way. Let's hope we can keep it that way. And then with HVCB and our global marketing team. We're doing imaging of Hawaii, which is our beautiful natural resources. I mean, the natural resources have time to take a break, so it's as beautiful as it can be, right, right now. Not only that, you know, with the Hawaiian culture interwined with it, it's paradise. So people are just coming as long as, you know, we work with our local residents and make sure everything is um, in a maintenance and not growth. I think it'll be a wonderful fit. And what are you hearing about the uh, Japan bubble? What's the feedback there? That is, it's on a roll. Japan was the first international market that, of course, they're the first um, largest in production for Hawaii as far as international market. So they're the first one that we started the TTP process. They already have 60, I believe, uh, partners um, all across Japan, and it's going extremely smoothly right now. We're not hearing any negatives on it. So the only thing is, you know, Japan in itself is going through a little bit of a resurgent right now. So it's going to take a little while because the Japanese government is right now telling the nationals not to travel, to stay close to home. So probably in the first quarter, I think it'll make a huge difference as far as travelers are concerned from Japan. There's this new wrinkle with the virus mutating uh, over in uh, Europe. So how do you think that's going to impact us? I don't know. It's a crystal ball. I mean, if that starts traveling the world and this mutant virus um, of COVID start spreading, yeah, it definitely is going to put some sort of a damper into the traveler's mindset. And because if the travelers are scared and they don't want to travel, then, you know, no matter what we do, it's going to be a tough battle. So what are we doing as far as marketing? Uh, You know that the Hawaii Tourism Authority is really funded 
by TAT or transient accommodations tax. And in 2020, due to obvious reasons, we really haven't had any TAT. So we're stretching whatever we had in 2020 through fiscal year 2021 and doing everything possible. And our focus really is the local residents. We really want the residents to be okay with the visitors, you know, to start arriving into Hawaii. And so our top of mind messaging really is the Malama program. Ever since we had our new boss, if you will, our CEO, Don DeFriza came in, he has amazing ideas of, and, and it's really embracing the local residents. So the Malama program, which HVCB for the domestic market and all of our global marketing team is uh, interwining in all of the uh, marketing and messaging that we're doing, which is basically programs like visitors to come, smaller footprints in Hawaii, uh, respecting the land, working like, you know, agri-tourism, agriculture tourism, volunteer tourism. So working with the locals, maybe planting a tree on Hawaii Island or working with the agriculture. And there's even uh, industry partners are really, really embraced it. So many of the hotels have done a special give, if you will. So if you stay like four nights or five nights, you'll get the six or seven nights free. If you are part of the Malama program and you work with the volume tourism or agritourism and many other items that, that they're putting out there right now. What can you share with us about the convention business? Our first, I think, uh, must do. Oh, I'm sorry, my dog is barking. <laughs> Okay, go ahead. The first priority I would say that we did embark on is all of those uh, citywide conventions and single property groups that canceled. Our job was to go back out there to see if we can rebook it. You know, it doesn't matter. It could could be rebooked 2021. Could it be rebooked the next five years? But the whole idea is to get it rebooked. What are some of the, I guess, the big conventions that we would have seen this year? One of the top of mind would be the International Chemical Congress. That normally brings us about 12,000 people, and that did cancel. So we have definitely been working on them. Also, we have, like, the AAA groups coming through. So the chemical definitely canceled. That normally comes in December, and it brings us about 12,000 people. But it's not just the island of Oahu. You know, it, it creates compression in Waikiki, which means that all of the neighbor island people get to experience a little bit of a bump also, and a lot of economic growth happens. So anytime you have a convention, there's always a pre-travel and a post-travel, people that stay a little bit longer. So we really wanted to work on that, and it's really great news because they did sign the contract to come back to us in 2021. Okay, so that's a bright spot for us there. Yes, yes. Definitely. And the team is working at it, you know, so all of the ones that did cancel may not be coming. Many of them are on a cycle, five-year cycle, three-year cycle, 10-year cycle. Whatever their cycle is, you know, we're trying to hone into it, working uh, with all of the hotels, working with the Hawaii Convention Center to be very competitive to the other destinations that are trying to gain their business. And how does that work? I mean, if the chemical group has uh, given the nod to next year, is it going to be totally in person? Will it be you know, partially virtual? Yeah, that's a great question. So globally, with social distancing going on, it probably is going to be half and half, half virtual and half in-person attendance. And I think that this is going to happen more and more as, as years go by, unless the virus kicks in 100% and COVID really does come under control. 
So it could be that we will have, you know, uh, 7,000 in attendance or 8,000, and the rest of them will virtually. People, some of the people will always be afraid to travel still. So it could be virtually zooming in, et cetera. Now, I know the convention center normally hires crews to videotape. You know, uh, I imagine that they'll be hired back to live stream or, or you know, at least get the technical uh, part of those conventions going. Yeah, technology is going to be critically important. I mean, with COVID-19, I think we've uh, technology has really jumped up a notch. Everybody's shopping online, ordering food online. So technology is really, really way more part of our daily life. And it's the same with the corporate business and convention market. Technology has to be stellar in order to be able to provide the needs yeah, of these guys. So, yes, the convention center is definitely working on that. And so are the hotels, by the way. And so uh, what about other groups that we may have done business with in the past? I think in, for conventions and uh, citywide groups, for 2021 presently, I believe we have six booked. And that is July, September, October. So mostly from summer on is where we'll see the convention in 2021. Okay, so yes. everybody's, then, everybody's hopeful that the vaccine will yes. help boost confidence with travelers in the future? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Catherine. I think that's the whole idea. And, and that's kind of like what we're targeting for the leisure market also, that, you know, maybe towards a 2Q, a second quarter, mid-second quarter, end of second quarter, that the market will start coming in. And we still continue to target the avid travelers, um, higher spend per person per day, and, and make sure that we... We try not to put Hawaii on sale as best as we can. I know everybody's in a desperate spot, especially activities and hotels, and discounts will happen. But in the same token, we do programs like Malama, where it's not really a discount. It really is tying in the visitors with the local residents. And what about other international destinations? What kind of work is being done in those areas? It's the same. So right now we're working with our global marketing team in Korea, Japan, of course, being the largest, Canada. Um, Canada is very excited with all of the uh, TTPs in place now. And then, of course, we're working with TTPs or travel testing partners in Korea and Taiwan also. Um, We're at a stage where we've identified the hospitals or the medical entities, and the AG office is um, uh, looking at the contracts, and the countries are looking at the contracts to see if they can accept the contract, sign it, fill out the form that Hawaii requires, and then the process will begin. So, yeah, we're excited about that, too. It's not huge markets, but, you know, the more we have, the better. And even if we have the vaccine, you know, right now there's a big question of you're protected, but you could still be a carrier. So we just want to make sure that we have plan number two strategy, if you will, just in case. Okay. Anything else that you think would be important to underscore as we look to kind of reposition ourselves? I'd like to talk a little about flights. There's one great news that came out over the weekend, and American Airlines have decided to do a direct flight from Charlotte. Um, And this is six or seven times weekly, and it starts from May 6th. So the airlines must be seeing some sort of demand, uh, because without demand, they're not going to fly. Um, And so these are all great signals. Canadian market has put in quite a bit of flights coming through from December 18th, the domestic market. Well, California really is our bread and butter, but they're going through a huge resurgence. So we'll have to watch that very closely. Okay. And then uh, anything else that you're looking forward to in 2021? We are going to be doing a lot of studying. Um, We've not gone through this before. Uh, Neither has anybody else. 
But I do believe that probably from the tail end of the second quarter, things are going to start to oil. The engine is going to start to oil. So we need to be ready for that. The, my only fear that I have is uh, whoever is willing to travel, the goal is trying to get the same travelers that we're targeting. So we need to make sure that we stay on top of it. Um, HVCB does a great job in the domestic market. And then they're kind of like the lead. And then our, our global marketing teams and the other international markets will take pieces of that work for their country and start the marketing and messaging process. So we are definitely already in that process. We're out of the chute. And we just have to make sure we keep our eyes vigilant so that we know what the globe is, the world is doing as far as marketing and stay on top of it. That was Patty Herman, Vice President of Marketing at the Hawaii Tourism Authority. She was talking about the bright spots on the horizon for 2021. Honolulu Civil Beat has an interesting story today about how Honolulu police were tailing the former city medical director, uh, Christopher Happy, uh, med- medical examiner. A reporter, Nick Ruby, got wind of the investigation and joins us now to talk about it. Good morning, Nick. Hi, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me on today. Yeah. So Christopher Happy, when did he leave the city? So Dr. Happy left the city in October 2019. He had resigned and at the time, there were a few questions about why he was resigning. Um, Honolulu uh, City Council Chairman Akaika Anderson at the time um, was told that the mayor's office had wanted to terminate Dr. Happy. Now, that is a little bit easier said than done because Dr. Happy, uh, as a cabinet member, he's one of the few who... Uh, must be terminated for cause uh, and with a hearing before the city council. Now, he left of his own accord. At the time, what we had found out was that there were problems between him and the administration. There were complaints that he was behind on his autopsy reports, for instance. Now, this, of course, has been a years-long problem. Uh, Dr. Happy has complained about being short-staffed for many years. Uh, He also had been complaining about the state of the city morgue um, for several years as well. I mean, there were rats running around the place. They had run out of refrigerator space for the cadavers. The roof was leaking. Somebody slipped and fell and got injured there because of that. Um, And so this was all happening in the background. But one thing that I learned is that in March 2019, many months before Dr. Happy had resigned, The Honolulu Police Department was asked by the mayor's office to investigate Dr. Happy to see if he was somehow involved with some drug activity. Now, the Honolulu Police Department then assigned their intelligence enforcement unit to look into Dr. Happy. And this unit is sort of the secretive police force within the department that is normally used to look into organized crime and terroristic activity. It's also the same unit that we know from the Kealoha scandal. It was used by uh, former police chief Louis Kealoha and his wife Catherine 
to help frame a family member for the theft of their mailbox. Now, I spoke to a number of Honolulu police officers who uh, were either a part of the surveillance or had direct knowledge of it, and plenty of them had misgivings about this assignment because they felt that it was similar to what the KLO has had done in terms of a potential abuse of power. So did they find anything? Uh, this surveillance uh, team, they watched Dr. Happy from uh, the, the moment he left his apartment to go to work to when he went home. They followed him to 7-Eleven. They, they followed him when he went to McDonald's on his way home. They even followed him to a cabinet retreat uh, that Kurt Caldwell had put on. And throughout it all, they didn't find anything to raise any suspicions about any sort of drug activity or any illegal activity at all. In fact, um, one had said that they uh, found him to be quite boring. <laughs> well, what did uh, Dr. Happy say when he learned about this special unit trailing him? When I reached Dr. Happy via phone, uh, he had said that he was just floored. I mean, his most common response to my questions was simply, wow. I can't believe that was happening. He had no idea that he was under police surveillance, and he couldn't understand why he would be. I mean, he said that he's not into drugs, he barely drinks alcohol, um, and that he couldn't imagine that, you know, possible friction with the mayor's office would result in uh, something like this occurring. I think the words he used were uh, he found it to be confusing and weird. Now, your article talks about how uh, the city uh, also hired a former assistant chief to help with the administrative work uh, just so that he, that Dr. Happy could, you know, stay focused on the autopsy reports. Um, you know, how did that work out? That's correct. So we had uh, received some email records, uh, internal emails from the city, showing that managing director Roy Emamiya uh, had really taken a keen interest in the the autopsy reports and the backlog that Dr. Happy had been uh, complaining about for, for many years. And to sort of help him with that, he hired uh, a former assistant fire chief for $10,000 a month to sit in the office and help with the administrative work. Now, of course, Dr. Happy had, had told us that he felt that um, – it was unnecessary and, again, felt weird to have that sort of oversight in his office at that time. But it was just an example of what uh, the, mayor's office, the mayor's and managing director's office was interested in at that time. The emails also showed that uh, Roy Amomia, the managing director, had asked Dr. Happy to do 25 autopsies per week or to close out 25 reports per week, excuse me, and also that later on he issued him a written reprimand for not moving fast enough. Okay. All right. And I know you uh, reached out to uh, HPD, uh, the chief and the deputy chief, and, uh, uh, you know, folks can uh, head to your website and, uh, and see what they had to say. But thanks so much, Nick. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it as well. That was reporter Nick Gruby with today's Reality Check. Again, head to civilbeat.org to read the entire story. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, investing in new ships, cranes, and terminals to continue serving Hawaii communities for generations to come. Matson.com. 
healthcare is changing, telemedicine is here, and going to see your doctor might not involve leaving your living room. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with a physician entrepreneur about his latest offering for enhancing the convenience for patients and their care. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Your Monday Stargazer focuses on a big event that hasn't happened in 800 years. HPR's Dave Lawrence and astronomer Christopher Phillips tells us we're on the cusp of what's called the Great Conjunction. Two of our planets get real close. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny, very troubled planet. And as usual, we're turning to the attention of astronomer Christopher Phillips and his reporting skills, which we're about to tap into. We've got him on the line. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have in store for us this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week, stargazers, keep your eyes to the skies for Jupiter and Saturn, which can be seen in the west-southwest after sunset. And a little more on that in a minute. The moon is passing through its first quarter phase and will get brighter as the week goes on, but that shouldn't be a problem for observing a historic moment in stargazing. Yes, explain this historic moment. We've been hearing lots of different reports on it and eager to hear your take as well. Well, as you probably know, the gas giants of Jupiter and Saturn are approaching conjunction, a point where the objects appear to be almost in the same spot in the sky. This will be the first such time that these two giants of the solar system have been in conjunction like this since July of 1623. However, 400 years prior to that, in 1226, they got even closer still. Now, this does not mean that the planets have changed orbits themselves and are about to collide in some sort of giant cosmic pileup. It simply means that from our perspective here on the Earth, they appear to be close together. And so this uh, trick of the eye basically probably doesn't happen too often because of the long orbits of the planets? Indeed. When you think about it, Jupiter takes 11.9 Earth years to make one single orbit of the Sun, and Saturn takes around 29 and a half years. That means that they often spend a lot of the time separated in the night sky and only come together like this every 20 years or so. And so if it happens once every 20 years, I bet there's a pretty simple explanation for why we don't see it that frequently. Well, it's simply because it happens during the day, and so we can't actually see this occur here on the Earth. However, if you were in space or using a space telescope, you'd be able to catch this kind of event more often. Planets, they are so far away that it tends to be around about the same time for everybody on Earth. Oh, wow. That's a trip. And so when will they actually be at their closest, Chris? Tonight onwards will be when the two planets are closest together, and they will gradually separate as the nights go on. And if you are lucky enough to own a decent pair of binoculars or a telescope, then you will be able to see this conjunction in even greater detail. So it's a good time to get to know your neighbors. (laughs) There you go. And uh, Christopher Phillips and a fun, enlightening, and interactive Stargazer report this week. Thank you so much. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for Waimanalo Health Center's expanded facility, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com. Earlier today, we were looking at the phenomenon of the drive-in eatery. On Oahu, there have been quite a few. Casey Drive-In, Chunky's Drive-In, Cow Cow Corner. Just a few names that resonate in the collective memory of island boomers who fondly recall the culture of their youth. 
fast cars, fast food, and rock and roll. Scotty's Drive-In on Keomoku opened in 1956, not far from where Hawaii Public Radio is now. A year later, a windward spot sported car hops near the edge of Kailua's Coconut Grove. It became an overnight success, reportedly selling 3,600 hamburgers for 17 cents apiece on opening day. Today, we asked you to name the eatery and its owners, remembered fondly on message boards, where some folks still talk about the signature flavors they miss. The tangy red and yellow hamburger sauces that coated the buns of shrimp burgers, mahi burgers, hamburgers, regular double or double deluxe. But after 42 years of feeding Kailua families, Andy's drive-in, started by Andy Wong and his brother-in-law, Ben Lum, closed on Saturday, May 29, 1999. Our winners today, Joshua Carroll and Kavena Mitchell, Kailua boys who remember Andy's. They say the car show's would end at Andy's, and they enjoyed the cheeseburger and french fries. That's our quiz today. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. It's one of the fastest-growing professions across the country. We're talking about social work. Social workers look out for the well-being of people by helping to meet basic and complex needs of people in our community. One of their mantras being, when we take care of each other, we take care of ourselves. Producer Lillian Song spoke with the University of Hawaii's Michael DeMatos. He's the chair of the bachelor's program at the Myron B. Thompson School of Social Work. We encounter social workers all the time and don't recognize it or don't realize it. You name the site, there's a social worker there. Hospital, check. Uh, School, check. Uh, Community center, clubhouses, uh, the VA, Department of Human Services, Family Court, we're kind of everywhere. But what happens is when we personally interact with a social worker, that's when we really begin to understand and appreciate what they do. So I've been a social worker now for a very long time, but I think one of my most potent experiences with social work was actually when my father was in hospice and we had an amazing social worker that helped us with his dying process and that left me free to be his son and function as a caregiver and help him through his process, through his dying process. I was so thankful to have a social worker in my life at that point. So it must take a certain type of individual to want to pursue social work. You know, it's it's interesting. That's a great question because I I think the reality is that most of us have what it takes to be a social worker, believe it or not. I think human beings are much more empathetic and caring than we realize. I think we sometimes in the news we hear about the worst that's happening and oftentimes when you just look around you realize that we're there for each other quite frequently, even those we barely know. But those that become social workers usually have a few things in common. One is that they're generally very empathetic, that they can feel with people through their process. They're good communicators. They're able to maintain healthy relationships, not perfect relationships. None of us is perfect, but they maintain healthy relationships. They can lead and they can follow, and they're self-aware. Again, not perfect, but self-aware. And I think People who have those types of qualities are drawn to social work. But I think there's another piece, too. For those of us who've lived through some form of hardship, 
that recognition that we've lived through that hardship makes us want to be there for others as they go through their difficult times. And so I think those are the types of qualities and, and the type of people that are attracted to social work. And this has been a very trying year. And yes. I know that the school, the Myron Thompson School of Social Work, has had a distance education option program already in the works. But how were you guys able to parlay that during this pandemic? Well, we were we were lucky when when the state went into shelter in place, we knew that we had to transition all of our campus-based courses online, but we were lucky. We already had a distance education program at the graduate level, and we also had a recently started distance education option at the undergraduate level. And so we had a really strong knowledge base about how to conduct our classes and courses online. And within, gosh, a week and a half to two weeks, we were able to get everything online and and do the best we could to maintain a real quality education for our students. It wasn't easy by any stretch, but I think we had some particular advantages because we were already trying to reach out to areas in the state that were underserved as far as educational opportunity goes. With distance learning in place now, what has it been like for our students in 2020? This this has been an incredibly challenging time for our students uh, and, and for faculty and staff. But, but if we're focusing on the students, I think the reality is, is that we obviously are still in the throes of the pandemic as it's worsening across the country. And, and here in Hawaii, we, we've been relatively stable for a while now, but, but the consequences have been far-reaching, including job loss and financial hurt and, and, frankly, housing issues. And so the students have been amazing in their consistency and perseverance with their schoolwork and classes. They're recognizing that that two things are true. One is that they're getting the education that they've wanted, but that education is going to help them make a difference once they graduate. And they're entering this world. I think what fascinated me most of all was how many of our students, as they, as they began engaging each other while sheltering in place, that they were creating systems of support for each other. And it was um, impressive to watch them begin to function as social workers before their degrees are even conferred. As an example, right now, our students have done toy drives and fundraisers for the Institute of Human Services for IHS. They've partnered with Ma Lama Project here on campus to help students who are dealing with substance use issues. Uh, They are sponsoring yoga classes and meditation classes and game nights. Uh, and then they're reaching out to the community to to learn how they can be difference makers in the community now, not when they graduate, but but right here and right now. And the reality is that we all have something to offer. We all we all have mana'o we can share. And and we find that what happens in our programs is that our students build communities, and these communities become informative to each other and for each other. And they become so much smarter together, and they they really develop a sense of mission. I'm sure that you've encountered many people. What's the youngest, or when do you start having people come to you saying, can you point me in the right direction? We actually do recruitment uh, in high schools, and we also do recruitment uh, at the community colleges and other four-year colleges across the state. Sometimes you've got... uh, an individual who recognizes they want to be a social worker from the very beginning. Normally, 
those that show very early interest in social work have had an experience with a social worker, that, that there's been a social worker in their lives that has touched their lives. Or, or frankly, they have a family member who is a social worker, either a parent or, a, or an uncle, auntie, you know, that kind. And so from a very early age, they're thinking, wow, maybe, maybe social work is for me. I see the difference that my loved one is making in the lives of others, or I know the difference that was made in my life. But more often than not, uh, we get students who ha are perhaps a little bit older. I think the average age in our bachelor's program is older than most programs across campus. And I think that's because they've had a set of life experiences that really help attract or they're attracted to social work because those set of life experiences push them to want to be there and help others. And so I've had students as young as 16 tell me that they're interested in social work and they're not even in college yet. And I've had those who've come back to school and they're in their 60s saying, I, I've decided to change careers and this is what I want to do. Good to know that you are not limited by your age. Absolutely not. And, and the reality is that we all have something to offer. We all, we all have one all we can share. And, and we find that what happens in our, in our programs is that our students build communities and these communities become um, informative uh, to each other and for each other, and they become so much smarter together, and they, they really develop a sense of mission. So as you are working to prepare the next class of social workers, are there any hurdles in the way, any speed bumps? Well, I, I think there are some serious concerns. One is with the pandemic, with the economic resultant economic crisis, the need is clear and it's present. And, and add to that um, some of the social justice issues that we're grappling with in our country that have been longstanding and are being addressed now in this moment. Despite the fact that all this is occurring now, the reality is that funding to agencies have been threatened. There have been job losses. There are programs, much like there are businesses closing, there are programs that, that are, have the potential of losing their funding. And so I've watched as the agencies in our community have pivoted and learned new ways to deliver services, utilizing technology and fully implementing uh, safety measures, uh, comprehensive safety measures. But I am nervous and I am scared that, that uh, the capacity that we're building with social workers, that we'll have, we'll have social workers ready to go and ready to serve the community, but the consequences of everything that have happened over the last year threaten um, their capacity to do that, 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 that those agencies may no longer be there, or that um, there'll be so many cuts that, that it'll be hard for them to secure positions. What's interesting about that, though, I say that, and even as I say it, uh, the reality is that according to the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics, Social work is one of the fastest growing professions in the country. And so the need is there. We have to make sure that we're able to get these servant leaders into the community so that they can become difference makers. And you guys are putting up a webinar to help people learn more if they're interested. So on January 6th at, at 9 a.m., uh, we're going to be holding a webinar that will explain uh, what it is social workers do, how they can get involved, um, and if they're interested in uh, the possibility of getting a degree, 
we can direct them to people like me and, and others on our faculty and staff to help them create plans so that they can pursue an education in social work. Um, I think it's important to know that, that there are three institutions here in Hawaii that provide social work education, Hawaii Pacific University, Brigham Young University, and UH Manoa. I think the reality is that we need uh, more and more people who recognize that when we take care of each other, we, we're also taking care of ourselves, that, that it's good for all of us. Uh, and I, I think I'd also like to add that we really have an opportunity here um, in our caring for others to maybe to, to live out what we espouse, what we feel. I think most of us are caring individuals that want to make a difference, but there's a difference between feeling that and enacting that. And social work really provides you the opportunity to live that out and to enact those deeper, richer feelings that you have to be a difference maker. That was UH Social Work Program Director Michael D'Amatos talking with HPR's producer Lillian Song. The Myron Thompson School of Social Work will be hosting a webinar in January to connect with people who are interested and who would like to pursue the field of social work. We'll have links on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. That's it for today. Tomorrow we take a closer look at stories around Kalopapa. Tomorrow marks the 40th anniversary of the National Park Service's presence there. Do you have a story about Kalapapa to share with us? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. Tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember, all of our shows are archived. Find them on our conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.